Hey, welcome to Socialism for All. This file is being recorded for the November 2023 edition of Socialism for All, and it's an audiobook and discussion of Socialism and War, the Attitude of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party Toward the War, from 1915 by Lenin and Zinoviev. If you like this video, please click like and subscribe, and consider supporting on Patreon or buy me a coffee at patreon.com slash socialismforall, or buymeacoffee.com slash socialismforall. There are links to Patreon and Buy Me a Coffee in the description below. So this piece was written in July and August 1915. It was published in pamphlet form in the autumn of 1915 by the Social Democrat Editorial Board in Geneva, published here according to that pamphlet text. The source is Lenin Collected Works, Foreign Languages Press, 1970, Peking, Volume 21, Proofed and corrected by Alvaro Miranda and Andy Blunden, 2022. Transcription and markup by E. O'Callaghan. And it's in the public domain at the Lenin Internet Archive within the Marxists Internet Archive. Marxists.org, thanks as usual. To MIA for hosting this and thousands of other free Marxist texts. So we begin with two notes. First, Lenin decided to write the pamphlet, Socialism and War, The Attitude of the RSDLP Toward the War, in connection with the preparations for the First International Socialist Conference. G.Y. Zinoviev helped to write the pamphlet, though most of it was drawn up by Lenin, who moreover edited the entire text. The pamphlet was published in German in September 1915 and distributed among the delegates to the Zimmerwald Socialist Conference. In 1916, it was published in French. Also, all early editions of Socialism and War in several languages, including those published while Lenin was still alive, clearly acknowledged Zinoviev as co-author of the document. The Soviet English-language edition of the Lenin Collected Works acknowledges Zinoviev's involvement, but, without explanation, omits him as co-author. That one is from MIA. Preface to the First Foreign Edition The war has been going on for a year already. Our party defined its attitude towards it at its very beginning. In the Central Committee's manifesto that was drawn up in September 1914 and printed after it had been sent out to the members of the CC and to our party's responsible representatives in Russia, and after their consent had been received, on November 1st, 1914, in number 33 of our party's central organ, Social Democrat. Footnote, Social Democrat was the central organ of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party published as an underground newspaper from February 1908 to January 1917. Altogether, 58 issues appeared, first in Russia and the rest abroad, at Paris, and later at Geneva. The Social Democrat published more than 80 articles and other items by Lenin, who became its editor in December 1911. Back to the text. Later, in number 40, March 29, 1915, were printed the resolutions of the Bern Conference, in which our principles and tactics were more precisely enunciated. Footnote, the Bern Conference, a conference of the sections of the RSDLP held abroad in Bern, Switzerland from February 27 to March 4, 1915. It was called on Lenin's initiative and had the standing of a Bolshevik general party conference since it was impossible to convene an all-Russian conference during the war. Representatives were present at the conference from the Bolshevik sections in Paris, Zurich, Geneva, Seine, Lausanne, and from the Bolgi group. Lenin represented the Central Committee and the Central Organ, Social Democrat, directed the proceedings of the conference, and made a report on the main item on the agenda, the war and the tasks of the party. The conference adopted resolutions on the war that were drafted by Lenin. Back to the text. At the present time in Russia, there is an obvious growth of revolutionary temper among the masses. In other countries, symptoms of the same phenomenon are observed everywhere. 
in spite of the suppression of the revolutionary strivings of the proletariat by the majority of the official social democratic parties, which have taken the side of their governments and their bourgeoisie. This state of things makes particularly urgent the publication of a pamphlet that sums up social democratic tactics in relation to the war, reprinting in full the above-mentioned party documents. We provide them with brief explanations, endeavoring to take into account all the chief arguments in favor of bourgeois and of proletarian tactics that have been expressed in literature and at party meetings. Preface to the second edition. This was printed in the 1918 edition of the pamphlet. This pamphlet was written in the summer of 1915, just before the Zimmerwald Conference. Footnote, this was the first conference of international socialists held in Zimmerwald, Switzerland on September 5 through 8, 1915. A struggle flared up at the conference between the Kautskyite majority and the revolutionary internationalists headed by Lenin. At the conference, Lenin organized the internationalists into the Zimmerwald left group. The conference adopted a manifesto, also available here at Socialism for All, which exposed the imperialist nature of the World War, denounced the, quote, socialists for voting for war credits and for participating in the bourgeois governments, and called on the workers of the European countries to wage struggles against the war and to strive for the conclusion of peace without annexation or payment of indemnities. The conference also adopted a resolution expressing sympathy for war victims and elected the International Socialist Conference, ISC. For an appraisal of the conference, see Lenin's articles, The First Step, and Revolutionary Marxists at the International Socialist Conference, September 5 through 8, 1915. Back to the text. This pamphlet also appeared in German and French, and was reprinted in full in Norwegian, in the organ of the Norwegian Social Democratic Youth League. The German edition of the pamphlet was secretly smuggled into Germany, into Berlin, Leipzig, Bremen, and other cities, where it was secretly distributed by supporters of the Zimmerwald left and by the Karl Liebknecht group. The French edition was secretly printed in Paris and distributed there by the French Zimmerwaldists. The Russian edition reached Russia in a very limited quantity and in Moscow was copied out by hand by workers. We are now reprinting this pamphlet in full as a document. The reader must remember all the time that the pamphlet was written in August 1915. This must be remembered particularly in connection with those passages which refer to Russia. Russia at that time was still Tsarist Romanov Russia. Comment. So remember, in 1917, there were two revolutions in Russia. First, in February, was the February Revolution, in which the Tsar was deposed. Then, in the power vacuum that emerged, basically there was a bourgeois-headed provisional government set up. Then, later that year, before the bourgeoisie was really able to get their government off the ground, there was a socialist revolution, and the rest, as they say, is history. Chapter 1. The Principles of Socialism and the War of 1914-15 to The Attitude of Socialists Toward Wars Socialists have always condemned war between nations as barbarous and brutal, but our attitude toward war is fundamentally different from that of the bourgeois pacifists, that is, supporters and advocates of peace, and of the anarchists. We differ from the former in that we understand the inevitable connection between wars and the class struggle within the country. We understand that war cannot be abolished unless classes are abolished and socialism is created. And we also differ in that we fully regard civil wars, i.e. wars waged by the oppressed class against the oppressing class, slaves against slave owners, serfs against landowners, and wage workers against the bourgeoisie, as legitimate, progressive, and necessary. We Marxists differ from both the pacifists and the anarchists in that we deem it necessary historically 
from the standpoint of Marx's dialectical materialism, to study each war separately. In history, there have been numerous wars which, in spite of all the horrors, atrocities, distress, and suffering that inevitably accompany all wars, were progressive, i.e. benefited the development of humanity by helping to destroy the exceptionally harmful and reactionary institutions, for example, autocracy or serfdom, the most barbarous despotisms in Europe, Turkish and Russian. Therefore, it is necessary to examine the historically specific features of precisely the present war. Historical Types of Wars in Modern Times The Great French Revolution ushered in a new epoch in the history of mankind. From that time to the Paris Commune, from 1789 to 1871, one of the types of wars were wars of a bourgeois progressive, national liberating character. In other words, the chief content and historical significance of these wars were the overthrow of absolutism and feudalism, the undermining of these institutions, the overthrow of alien oppression. Therefore, those were progressive wars, and during such wars, all honest revolutionary democrats, and also all socialists, always sympathized with the success of that country, i.e. with that bourgeoisie, which had helped to overthrow, or sap, the most dangerous foundation of feudalism, absolutism, and the oppression of other nations. For example, the revolutionary wars waged by France contained an element of plunder and conquest of alien territory by the French, but this does not in the least alter the fundamental historical significance of these wars, which destroyed and shattered feudalism and absolutism in the whole of old, serf-ridden Europe. In the Franco-Prussian War, Germany plundered France, but this does not alter the fundamental historical significance of this war, which liberated tens of millions of German people from feudal disintegration and from the oppression of two despots, the Russian Tsar and Napoleon III. The Difference Between Aggressive and Defensive War The epoch of 1789 to 1871 left deep marks and revolutionary memories. Before feudalism, absolutism, and alien oppression were overthrown, the development of the proletarian struggle for socialism was out of the question. When speaking of the legitimacy of, quote, defensive war in relation to the wars of such an epoch, socialists always had in mind precisely these objects, which amounted to revolution against medievalism and serfdom. By defensive war, socialists always meant a just war in this sense. William Liebknecht once expressed himself precisely in this way. Only in this sense have socialists regarded, and now regard, wars, quote, for the defense of the fatherland, or defensive wars, as legitimate, progressive, and just. For example, if tomorrow Morocco were to declare war on France, India on England, Persia or China on Russia, and so forth, those would be just, in the sense of being for justice, defensive wars, irrespective of who attacked first, and every socialist would sympathize with the victory of the oppressed, dependent, unequal states against the oppressing, slave-owning, predatory great powers. But picture to yourselves a slave owner who owned a hundred slaves, warring against a slave owner who owned two hundred slaves, for a more just distribution of slaves. Clearly, the application of the term defensive war, or war for the defense of the fatherland in such a case, would be historically false, and in practice would be sheer deception of the common people, of Philistines, of ignorant people, by the astute slave owners. Precisely in this way are the present-day imperialist bourgeoisie deceiving the peoples by means of national ideology and the term defense of the fatherland in the present war between slave owners for fortifying and strengthening slavery. The present war is an imperialist war. 
Nearly everybody admits that the present war is an imperialist war, but in most cases this term is distorted or applied to one side, or a loophole is left for the assertion that this war may, after all, have a bourgeois progressive, national liberating significance. Imperialism is the highest stage in the development of capitalism, reached only in the 20th century. Capitalism now finds the old national states, without the formation of which it could not have overthrown feudalism, too tight for it. Capitalism has developed concentration to such a degree that whole branches of industry have been seized by syndicates, trusts, and associations of capitalist billionaires, and almost the entire globe has been divided up among the lords of capital, either in the form of colonies or by enmeshing other countries in thousands of threads of financial exploitation. Free trade and competition have been superseded by the striving for monopoly, for the seizure of territory for the investment of capital, for the export of raw materials from them, and so forth. From the liberator of nations that capitalism was, in the struggle against feudalism, imperialist capitalism has become the greatest oppressor of nations. Formerly progressive, capitalism has become reactionary. It has developed the forces of production to such a degree that mankind is faced with the alternative of going over to socialism or suffering years and even decades of armed struggle between the great powers for the artificial preservation of capitalism by means of colonies, monopolies, privileges, and national oppression of every kind. Comment, which one did we get? Which one did our ancestors choose? Continuing. War between the biggest slave owners for preserving and fortifying slavery. To explain the significance of imperialism, we will quote exact figures showing the division of the world among the so-called great, that is to say successful in great plunder, powers. So here in the text there is a chart which lists first the great powers, England, Russia, France, Germany, Japan, and the USA, and their colonial possessions in 1876 versus 1914, all of them grew, and then also their metropolises, which both grew in population and territory, then the colonial possessions of lesser powers, i.e. not the great ones, Belgium, Holland, and other states, those stayed the same, and then there are categories for the three semi-colonial countries, Turkey, China, and Persia, then listing for other states and countries, and then the entire globe, minus the polar regions. From this, it is seen how most of the nations which fought at the head of others for freedom in 1798 to 1871 have now, after 1876, on the basis of highly developed and overripe capitalism, became the oppressors and enslavers of the majority of the populations and nations of the globe. From 1876 to 1914, six great powers grabbed 25 million square kilometers, i.e. an area two and a half times that of Europe. Six powers are enslaving over half a billion, 521 million, inhabitants of colonies. For every four inhabitants of the great powers, there are five inhabitants of, quote, their colonies. And everybody knows that colonies are conquered by fire and sword, that the populations of colonies are brutally treated, that they're exploited in a thousand ways, by exporting capital, concessions, etc., cheating when selling them goods, subordination to the authorities of the ruling nation, so on and so forth. The Anglo-French bourgeoisie are deceiving the people when they say that they're waging war for the freedom of nations and for Belgium. Actually, they're waging war for the purpose of retaining the colonies they have inordinately grabbed. The German imperialists would free Belgium, etc., at once, if the British and French would agree, quote, fairly to share their colonies with them. The peculiarity of the situation lies in that, in this war, the fate of the colonies is being decided by war on the continent. 
from the standpoint of bourgeois justice and national freedom, or of the right of nations to existence, Germany would be absolutely right as against England and France, for she has been done out of colonies. Her enemies are oppressing an immeasurably far larger number of nations than she is, and the Slavs who are oppressed by her ally Austria undoubtedly enjoy far more freedom than those in Tsarist Russia, that real prison of nations. But Germany is fighting not for the liberation, but for the oppression of nations. It is not the business of socialists to help the younger and stronger robber, Germany, to rob the older and overgorged robbers. Socialists must take advantage of the struggle between the robbers to overthrow them all. To be able to do this, the socialists must first of all tell people the truth, namely, that this war is in a triple sense a war between slave owners to fortify slavery. This is a war, firstly, to fortify the enslavement of the colonies by means of a, quote, fairer distribution and subsequent more concerted exploitation of them. Secondly, to fortify the oppression of other nations within the great powers for both Austria and Russia. Russia more and much worse than Austria maintain their rule only by such oppression, intensifying it by means of war. And thirdly, to fortify and prolong wage slavery, capitalism, for the proletariat is split up and suppressed, while the capitalists gain, making fortunes out of the war, aggravating national prejudices and intensifying reaction, which has raised its head in all countries, even in the freest and most republican. War is the continuation of politics by other, i.e. violent, means. This famous aphorism was uttered by one of the profoundest writers on the problem of war, Clausewitz. Marxists have always rightly regarded this thesis as the theoretical basis of views concerning the significance of every given war. It was precisely from this viewpoint that Marx and Engels always regarded different wars. Apply this view to the present war. You will see that for decades, almost half a century, the governments and the ruling classes of England and France and Germany and Italy and Austria and Russia pursued a policy of plundering colonies, of oppressing other nations, of suppressing the working class movement. It is this, and only this policy, that is being continued in the present war. In particular, the policy of both Austria and Russia peacetime, as well as in war, is a policy of enslaving and not of liberating nations. In China, Persia, India, and other dependent countries, on the contrary, we have seen during the past decades a policy of rousing tens and hundreds of millions of people to national life of liberating them from the oppression of the reactionary, quote, great powers. A war on such a historical ground can even today be a bourgeois progressive national liberation war. It is sufficient to glance at the present war from the viewpoint that it is a continuation of the politics of the great powers and of the principal classes within them, to see at once the howling anti-historicalness, falsity, and hypocrisy of the view that the, quote, defense of the fatherland idea can be justified, in the present war. The example of Belgium. The favorite plea of the social chauvinist triple, now quadruple entente, in Russia, that is Plekhanov and company, is the example of Belgium. But this example goes against them. By the way, footnote, the entente was the imperialist alliance of Britain, France, Russia, and Italy. The latter joined after breaking away from the triple alliance. Back to the text. The German imperialists shamelessly violated the neutrality of Belgium as belligerent states have done always and everywhere, trampling upon all treaties and obligations if necessary. Let us suppose that all the states interested in the observation of international treaties declared war on Germany with the demand for the liberation and indemnification of Belgium. In such a case, 
The sympathies of socialists would, of course, be on the side of Germany's enemies. But the whole point is that the triple and quadruple entente is waging war not over Belgium. This is perfectly well known, and only hypocrites conceal this. England is grabbing Germany's colonies and Turkey. Russia is grabbing Galicia and Turkey. France wants Alsace-Lorraine and even the left bank of the Rhine. A treaty has been concluded with Italy for the division of the spoils, Albania and Asia Minor. Bargaining is going on with Bulgaria and Romania, also for the division of the spoils. In the present war, waged by the present governments, it is impossible to help Belgium without helping to strangle Austria or Turkey, etc. How does defense of the fatherland come in here? Herein, precisely, lies the specific feature of imperialist war. War between reactionary bourgeois, historically obsolete governments, waged for the purpose of oppressing other nations. Whoever justifies participation in the present war perpetuates imperialist oppression of nations. Whoever advocates taking advantage of the present embarrassments of the governments to fight for the social revolution champions the real freedom of really all nations, which is possible only under socialism. What is Russia fighting for? In Russia, capitalist imperialism of the latest type has fully revealed itself in the policy of czarism towards Persia, Manchuria, and Mongolia. But, in general, military and feudal imperialism predominates in Russia. In no country in the world is the majority of the population oppressed so much as it is in Russia. Great Russians constitute only 43% of the population. That is less than half. All the rest are denied rights as aliens. Of the 170 million inhabitants of Russia, about 100 million are oppressed and denied rights. Tsarism is waging war to seize Galicia and finally to crush the liberties of the Ukrainians, to seize Armenia, Constantinople, etc. Tsarism regards the war as a means of diverting attention from the growth of discontent within the country and of suppressing the growing revolutionary movement. At the present time, for every two great Russians in Russia, by the way, great Russians means like Russians proper, not from one of the other areas in the Russian Empire, there are from two to three rightless aliens. Tsarism is striving by means of the war to increase the number of nations oppressed by Russia, to perpetuate this oppression and thereby undermine the struggle for freedom which the great Russians themselves are waging. The possibility of oppressing and robbing other nations perpetuates economic stagnation, because often the source of income is not the development of productive forces, but the semi-feudal exploitation of aliens. Thus, on the part of Russia, the war is distinguished for its profoundly reactionary, an anti-liberating character. What is social chauvinism? Social chauvinism is advocacy of the idea of defense of the fatherland in the present war. Further, this idea logically leads to the abandonment of the class struggle during the war, to voting war credits, etc. Actually, the social chauvinists are pursuing an anti-proletarian bourgeois policy, for actually, they are championing not defense of the fatherland in the sense of fighting foreign oppression, but for the right of one or other of the great powers to plunder colonies and to oppress other nations. The social chauvinists repeat the bourgeois deception of the people, that the war is being waged to protect the freedom and existence of nations, and thereby they go over to the side of the bourgeoisie against the proletariat. In the category of social chauvinists are those who justify and embellish the governments and bourgeoisie of one of the belligerent groups of powers, as well as those who, like Kautsky, argue that the socialists of all the belligerent powers have an equal right to defend the fatherland, social chauvinism being actually the defense of the privileges, advantages, robbery, and violence of one's, quote, own, or every imperialist bourgeoisie, is the utter betrayal 
of all socialist convictions and of the decision of the Basel International Socialist Congress. The Basel Manifesto The Manifesto on War that was unanimously adopted in Basel in 1911 had in view the very war between England and Germany and their present allies that broke out in 1914. The Manifesto openly declares that no plea of the interests of the people can justify such a war, waged for the sake of the profits of the capitalists and the ambitions of dynasties on the basis of the imperialist, predatory policy of the great powers. The Manifesto openly declares that war is dangerous, quote, for the governments, all without exception. It notes their fear of a proletarian revolution and very definitely points to the example of the Commune of 1871 and of October-December 1905 i.e., to the examples of revolution and civil war. Thus, the Basel Manifesto lays down, precisely for the present war, the tactics of revolutionary struggle by the workers on an international scale against their governments, the tactics of proletarian revolution. The Basel Manifesto repeats the statement in the Stuttgart Resolution that in the event of war breaking out, socialists must take advantage of the economic and political crisis it will cause in order to hasten the downfall of capitalism i.e. to take advantage of the government's embarrassments and the anger of the masses caused by the war for the socialist revolution. The policy of the social chauvinists, their justification of the war from the bourgeois liberation standpoint, their sanctioning of defense of the fatherland, voting credits, entering cabinets, and so on and so forth, is downright treachery to socialism, which can be explained only, as we will see lower down, by the victory of opportunism and of the national liberal labor policy in the majority of European parties. False references to Marx and Engels. Comment, that phrase puts me overwhelmingly in mind of a video we did like three years ago in the 2020 election, when Vosch tried to put together a bunch of like Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Mao quotes in support or attempted support of the idea of voting for Joe Biden which resulted in a somewhat comical, you know, just these quotes were completely out of context. And whoever put together this list and this argument really just had no idea what they were doing whatsoever. But yeah, false references to Marx and Engels indeed. Let's continue. The Russian social chauvinists, headed by Plekhanov, referred to Marx's tactics in the War of 1870. The German, of the type of Lynch and Company, to Engels' statement in 1891 that in the event of war against Russia and France together, it would be the duty of the German socialists to defend their fatherland. And lastly, the social chauvinists of the Kautsky type, who want to reconcile and legitimize international chauvinism, referred to the fact that Marx and Engels, while condemning war, nevertheless constantly from 1870 to 1871 and 1876 to 77, took the side of one or another belligerent state once war had broken out. All these references are outrageous distortions of the views of Marx and Engels in the interest of the bourgeoisie and the opportunists, in just the same way as the writings of the anarchists Guillaume and company distort the views of Marx and Engels in justification of anarchism. Comment, which by the way, we haven't covered this in a while, but there were anarchists during Marx and Engels' times, they were contemporaries. Marx and Engels were not anarchists, they were not fond of anarchists, and they wrote a number of pieces against anarchists and anarchism. If you want a good example of one, there's one about uh, Spain circa 1870 called The Bakuninists at Work. We also have a whole playlist, Marxists on Anarchism. Anyway, the War of 1870-71 to 71 was a historically progressive war on the part of Germany until Napoleon III was defeated, for the latter, together with the Tsar, had oppressed Germany for many years, keeping her in a state of feudal disintegration. 
But as soon as the war developed into the plunder of France, the annexation of Alsace and Lorraine, Marx and Engels emphatically condemned the Germans. And even at the beginning of that war, Marx and Engels approved of the refusal of Babel and Liebknecht to vote for credits and advised the Social Democrats not to merge with the bourgeoisie, but to uphold the independent class interests of the proletariat. To apply the appraisal of this bourgeois progressive and national liberating war to the present imperialist war means mocking at truth. The same applies with still greater force to the War of 1854-55 and to all the wars of the 19th century when there was no modern imperialism, no ripe objective conditions for socialism, and no mass socialist parties in any of the belligerent countries, i.e. none of the conditions from which the Basel Manifesto deduced the tactics of proletarian revolution in connection with the war between the great powers. By the way, another comment, when Lenin talks, as he's done a couple of times, about ripe objective conditions for socialism, he means more the class composition and the state of industry. So at that time in the 1850s, capitalism was still trying to get a leg up on feudalism in a lot of places. It was not well developed. The proletariat as a class was also not well developed. So could you really launch, even with the most determined of fighters within the existing proletariat, could you really launch a transformative social revolution which would really take hold and be able to depose the bourgeoisie. Well, the proletariat wasn't there yet. Industry wasn't there yet. You know, a lot of the things that socialists tend to look for, more developed and consolidated industry, etc., not there yet. Development had not been carried that far. The historical tasks of capitalism, in other words, had not really been completed to the point where the objective conditions for socialism could be considered ripe. Continuing, whoever refers today to Marx's attitude toward the wars of the epoch of the progressive bourgeoisie, that is, the bourgeoisie at the head of a capitalism that was still taking society further and overthrowing feudalism, and forgets Marx's statement that the workers have no fatherland, a statement that applies precisely to the epoch of the reactionary, obsolete bourgeoisie, to the epoch of the socialist revolution, shamelessly distorts Marx and substitutes the bourgeois for the socialist point of view. The Collapse of the Second International The socialists of all the world solemnly declared in Basel in 1912 that they regarded the impending war in Europe as the criminal and most reactionary affair of all the governments, which must hasten the downfall of capitalism by inevitably calling forth a revolution against it. The war came, the crisis came. Instead of revolutionary tactics, the majority of the social democratic parties conducted reactionary tactics, went over to the side of their respective governments and bourgeoisie. This betrayal of socialism signifies the collapse of the second, 1889-1914, Socialist International, and we must understand what caused this collapse, what brought social chauvinism into being, what gave it strength. Social chauvinism is consummated opportunism. During the whole epoch of the Second International, a struggle raged everywhere in the Social Democratic parties between the revolutionary and the opportunist wings. In a number of countries, a split has taken place along this line. England, Italy, Holland, Bulgaria. Not a single Marxist has any doubt that opportunism expresses bourgeois policy within the working class movement, expresses the interests of the petty bourgeoisie and the alliance of a tiny section of bourgeoisified workers with, quote, their bourgeoisie, against the interests of the proletarian masses, the oppressed masses. 
The objective conditions of the end of the 19th century exceptionally intensified opportunism, converted the utilization of bourgeois legality into subservience to it, created a tiny stratum of bureaucrats and aristocrats within the working class, and drew into the ranks of the social democratic parties numerous petty bourgeois fellow travelers. The war accelerated this development and transformed opportunism into social chauvinism transformed the secret alliance between the opportunists and the bourgeoisie into an open one. Simultaneously, the military authorities everywhere have introduced martial law and have muzzled the mass of the workers, whose old leaders have nearly all gone over to the bourgeoisie. Opportunism and social chauvinism have the same economic basis, the interests of a tiny stratum of privileged workers and of the petty bourgeoisie who are defending their privileged position their, quote, right to crumbs of the profits, quote, their national bourgeoisie obtained from robbing other nations, from the advantages of their position as the ruling nation, etc. Opportunism and social chauvinism have the same ideological political content, collaboration of classes instead of class struggle, renunciation of revolutionary methods of struggle, helping one's, quote, own government in its embarrassed situation instead of taking advantage of these embarrassments for revolution. If we take all the European countries as a whole, if we pay attention not to individuals, even the most authoritative, we will find that it is the opportunist trend that has become the chief bulwark of social chauvinism, whereas from the camp of the revolutionaries, more or less consistent protests against it are heard nearly everywhere. And if we take, for example, the grouping of trends at the Stuttgart International Socialist Congress in 1907, we will find that international Marxism was opposed to imperialism, while international opportunism was in favor it already at that time. Footnote there about the ISC. The Stuttgart International Socialist Congress was held on August 18 to 24, 1907. At this Congress, the RSDLP, Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, was represented by 37 delegates. Lenin, Lunacharsky, Litvinov, and others represented the Bolsheviks. Most of the work of the Congress was conducted in commissions, which drafted resolutions for submission to the plenary sessions. Lenin was a member of the commission that drafted the resolution on militarism and international conflicts. Jointly with Rosa Luxemburg, Lenin moved his historic amendment to Babel's resolution, declaring that it was the duty of socialists to take advantage of the crisis brought about by war to rouse the masses for the overthrow of capitalism. The Congress accepted this amendment. On the Congress, see V.I. Lenin, the International Socialist Congress in Stuttgart. Back to the main text. Unity with the opportunists means alliance between the workers and, quote, their national bourgeoisie, and splitting the international revolutionary working class. In the past epoch, before the war, although opportunism was regarded as a, quote, deviationist, quote, extremist part of the Social Democratic Party, it was nevertheless regarded as a legitimate part. The war has shown that this cannot be so in the future. Opportunism has matured, is now playing to the full its role as emissary of the bourgeois in the working class movement. Unity with the opportunists has become sheer hypocrisy, an example of which we see in the German Social Democratic Party. On all important occasions, for example, the voting on August 4, the opportunists come forward with an ultimatum, which they carry out with the aid of their numerous connections with the bourgeoisie, of their majority on the executives of the trade unions, etc. Unity with the opportunists actually means today subordinating the working class to, quote, its national bourgeoisie, alliance with it for the purpose of oppressing other nations, and of fighting for great power privileges. It means splitting the revolutionary proletariat in all countries. 
hard as the struggle may be, in individual cases against the opportunists who predominate in many organizations, peculiar as the process of purging the workers' parties of opportunists may be in individual countries, this process is inevitable and fruitful. Reformist socialism is dying. Regenerated socialism, quote, will be revolutionary, uncompromising, and insurrectionary, to use the apt expression of the French socialist Paul Gallet. Kautskyism. Kautsky, the biggest authority in the Second International, gives us a highly typical and glaring example of how the verbal recognition of Marxism has led actually to its conversion into Struvism or into Brentanoism. Footnote there, Brentanoism was a bourgeois reformist theory which, quote, recognized the school of capitalism but rejected the school of the revolutionary class struggle, unquote, quoting Lenin. Luho Brentano, a German bourgeois economist, advocate of so-called state socialism, tried to prove that it was possible to achieve social equality within the capitalist system by means of reforms and the conciliation of the interests of the capitalists and the workers. Under the cloak of Marxist phraseology, Brentano and his followers tried to subordinate the working class movement to the interests of the bourgeoisie. Back to the text. We see this also from the example of Plekhanov. By means of obvious sophistry, they rob Marxism of its revolutionary living spirit. They recognize everything in Marxism except revolutionary methods of struggle, the preaching of and preparation for such methods, and the training of the masses precisely in this direction. Kautsky, in an unprincipled fashion, quote, reconciles the fundamental idea of social chauvinism, recognition of defense of the fatherland in the present war, with a diplomatic, sham concession to the leftists, the shape of abstaining from voting credits, the verbal claim of being in the opposition, etc. Kautsky, who in 1909 wrote a whole book on the approaching epoch of revolutions and on the connection between war and revolutions, Kautsky, who in 1912 signed the Basel Manifesto on taking revolutionary advantage of the impending war, is now, in every way, justifying and embellishing social chauvinism and, like Plekhanov, joins the bourgeoisie in ridiculing all thought of revolution, all steps toward direct revolutionary struggle. The working class cannot play its world revolutionary role unless it wages a ruthless struggle against this renegacy, spinelessness, subservience to opportunism, and unexampled vulgarization of the theories of Marxism. Kautskyism is not fortuity, but a social product of the contradictions within the Second International, a combination of loyalty to Marxism in words and subordination to opportunism in deeds. This fundamental falseness of Kautskyism manifests itself in different ways in different countries. In Holland, Roland Holst, while rejecting the idea of defending the fatherland, defends unity with the opportunist party. In Russia, Trotsky, while also rejecting this idea, also defends unity with the opportunist and chauvinist Nashizarya group. In Romania, Rakovsky, while declaring war on opportunism as being responsible for the collapse of the international, is at the same time ready to recognize the legitimacy of the idea of defending the fatherland. All this is a manifestation of the evil which the Dutch Marxists, Gorder and Panikok, have called passive radicalism, and which amounts to substituting for Marxism eclecticism in theory and servility to, or impotence in the face of, opportunism in practice. The Marxist slogan is the slogan of revolutionary social democracy. The war has undoubtedly created a most acute crisis and has increased the distress of the masses to an incredible degree. The reactionary character of this war 
and the shameless lies told by the bourgeoisie of all countries in covering up their predatory aims with national ideology are inevitably creating, on the basis of an objectively revolutionary situation, revolutionary moods among the masses. It is our duty to help the masses to become conscious of these moods, to deepen and formulate them. This task is correctly expressed only by the slogan, convert the imperialist war into civil war, and all consistently waged class struggles during the war, all seriously conducted mass action tactics, inevitably lead to this. It is impossible to foretell whether a powerful revolutionary movement will flare up during the first or the second war of the great powers, whether during or after it. In any case, our bounden duty is systematically and undeviatingly to work precisely in this direction. The Basel Manifesto refers directly to the example set by the Paris Commune, i.e., to the conversion of a war between governments into civil war. Half a century ago, the proletariat was still too weak. The objective conditions for socialism had not yet ripened. There could be no coordination and cooperation between the revolutionary movements in all the belligerent countries. The, quote, national ideology, the traditions of 1792, with which a section of the Parisian workers were imbued, was their petty bourgeois weakness, which Marx noted at the time, and was one of the causes of the fall of the commune. Half a century after it, the conditions that weakened the revolution at that time have passed away, and it is unpardonable for a socialist at the present time to resign himself to the abandonment of activities precisely in the spirit of the Paris communards. The example shown by the fraternization in the trenches. The bourgeois newspapers of all the belligerent countries have reported cases of fraternization between the soldiers of the belligerent nations, even in the trenches. And the issue by the military authorities of Germany and England of draconic orders against such fraternization proved that the governments and the bourgeoisie attached grave importance to it. The fact that such cases of fraternization have been possible, even when opportunism reigned supreme in the top ranks of the social democratic parties of Western Europe, and when social chauvinism is supported by the entire social democratic press and by all the authorities of the Second International, shows us how possible it would be to shorten the present criminal, reactionary, and slave owners' war, and to organize a revolutionary international movement if systematic work were conducted in this direction, if only by the left-wing socialists in all the belligerent countries. The Importance of an Underground Organization The most prominent anarchists all over the world, no less than the opportunists, have disgraced themselves with social chauvinism, in the spirit of Plekhanov and Kautsky, in this war. One of the useful results of this war will undoubtedly be that it will kill both anarchism and opportunism. While under no circumstances or conditions refraining from utilizing all legal possibilities, however small, for the purpose of organizing the masses and of preaching socialism, the social democratic parties must break with subservience to legality. Quote, You shoot first, Monsieur the Bourgeoisie, wrote Engels, hinting precisely at civil war and at the necessity of our violating legality after the bourgeoisie had violated it. The crisis has shown that the bourgeoisie violated in all countries, even the freest, and that it is impossible to lead the masses to revolution unless an underground organization is set up for the purpose of advocating, discussing, appraising, and preparing revolutionary methods of struggle. In Germany, for example, all the honest things that socialists are doing are being done in spite of despicable opportunism and hypocritical Kautskyism and are being done secretly. In England, people are sent to penal servitude for printing appeals against joining the army. 
to regard the repudiation of underground methods of propaganda and ridiculing the latter in the legally published press as being compatible with membership of the Social Democratic Party is treachery to socialism. Concerning defeat of one's own government in the imperialist war. Both the advocates of victory for their governments in the present war and the advocates of the slogan, neither victory nor defeat, equally take the standpoint of social chauvinism. A revolutionary class cannot but wish for the defeat of its government in a reactionary war, cannot fail to see that its military reverses facilitate its overthrow. Only a bourgeois who believes that a war started by the governments must necessarily end as a war between governments, and wants it to end as such, can regard as, quote, ridiculous and, quote, absurd the idea that the socialists of all the belligerent countries should wish for the defeat of all, quote, their governments, and express this wish. On the contrary, it is precisely a statement of this kind that would conform to the cherished thoughts of every class-conscious worker, and would be in line with our activities toward converting the imperialist war into civil war. Undoubtedly, the serious anti-war agitation that's being conducted by a section of the British, German, and Russian socialists has, quote, weakened the military power of the respective governments, but such agitation stands to the credit of the socialists. Socialists must explain to the masses that they have no other road of salvation except the revolutionary overthrow of, quote, their governments, and that advantage must be taken of these governments' embarrassments in the present war precisely for this purpose. Pacifism and the Peace Slogan the sentiments of the masses in favor of peace often express incipient protest, anger, and consciousness of the reactionary character of the war. It is the duty of all social democrats to utilize these sentiments. They will take a most ardent pan in every movement and in every demonstration on this ground, but they will not deceive the people by conceding the idea that peace without annexations, without the oppression of nations, without plunder, without the germs of new wars among the present governments and ruling classes, is possible in the absence of a revolutionary movement. Such a deception of the people would merely play into the hands of the secret diplomacy of the belligerent governments and facilitate their counter-revolutionary plans. Whoever wants a lasting and democratic peace must be in favor of civil war against the governments and the bourgeoisie. The Right of Nations to Self-Determination the most widespread deception of the people perpetrated by the bourgeoisie in the present war is the concealment of its predatory aims with, quote, national liberation ideology. The English promised the liberation of Belgium, the Germans of Poland, etc. Actually, as we've seen, this is a war waged by the oppressors of the majority of the nations of the world for the purpose of fortifying and expanding such oppression. Socialists cannot achieve their great aim without fighting against all oppression of nations. Therefore, they must without fail demand that the social democratic parties of oppressing countries, especially of the so-called great powers, should recognize and champion the right of oppressed nations to self-determination, precisely in the political sense of the term, i.e. the right to political secession. The socialist of a ruling or colony-owning nation who fails to champion this right is a chauvinist. The championing of this right, far from encouraging the formation of small states, leads, on the contrary, to the freer, fearless, and therefore wider and more widespread formation of very big states and federations of states, which are more beneficial for the masses and more fully in keeping with economic development. The socialists of oppressed nations must, in their turn, unfailingly fight for the complete including organizational, 
unity of the workers, the oppressed and oppressing nationalities, the idea of the juridical separation of one nation from another, so-called cultural national autonomy, advocated by Bauer and Renner, is reactionary. Imperialism is the epic of the constantly increasing oppression of the nations of the world by a handful of great powers, and therefore, it's impossible to fight for the socialist international revolution against imperialism unless the right of nations to self-determination is recognized. Quote, no nation can be free if it oppresses other nations, quoting Marx and Engels. A proletariat that tolerates the slightest violence by its nation against other nations cannot be a socialist proletariat. Chapter 2. Classes and Parties in Russia. The Bourgeoisie and the War. To one respect, the Russian government has not lagged behind its European confreres. Like them, it has succeeded in deceiving its people on a grand scale. A huge, monstrous machine of falsehood and cunning was set going in Russia too for the purpose of infecting the masses with chauvinism, of creating the impression that the Tsarist government is waging a just war, that it is disinterestedly defending its brother Slavs, etc. The landlord class in the upper stratum of the commercial and industrial bourgeoisie ardently supported the Tsarist government's bellicose policy. They are rightly expecting enormous material gains and privileges for themselves out of the partition of the Turkish and the Austrian legacy. A whole series of their congresses already have a foretaste of the profits that would flow into their pockets if the Tsarist army were victorious. Moreover, the reactionaries are very well aware that if anything can postpone the downfall of the Romanov monarchy and delay the new revolution in Russia, it can only be a foreign war that ends in victory for the Tsar. Broad strata of the urban middle bourgeoisie, of the bourgeois intelligentsia, professional people, etc., were also infected with chauvinism, at all events at the beginning of the war. The cadets, the party of the Russian liberal bourgeoisie, wholly and unreservedly supported the Tsarist government. In the sphere of foreign policy, the cadets have long been a government party. Pan-Slavism, with the aid of which Tsarist diplomacy has more than once carried out its grand political swindles, has become the official ideology of the cadets. Russian liberalism has degenerated into national liberalism. It is vying in, quote, patriotism with the black hundreds. It always willingly votes for militarism on land and sea, etc., in the camp of Russian liberalism, approximately the same thing is observed as was seen in the 1870s in Germany, when, quote, free-thinking liberalism decayed, and from it arose a national liberal party. The Russian liberal bourgeoisie has definitely taken the path of counter-revolution. The point of view of the RSDLP on this question has been fully confirmed. Life has shattered the view held by our opportunists that Russian liberalism is still a motive force of the revolution in Russia. Among the peasantry, the ruling clique with the aid of the bourgeois press, the clergy, etc., also succeeded in rousing chauvinist sentiments. But, as the soldiers return from the field of slaughter, sentiment in the rural districts will undoubtedly turn against the Tsarist monarchy. The bourgeois democratic parties that come in contact with the peasantry failed to withstand the chauvinist wave. The Trudovic party in the state Duma, or parliament, refused to vote for war credits, but through the mouth of its leader Kerensky, it made a patriotic declaration, which played extremely well into the hands of the monarchy. The entire legally published press of the Narodniks, or populists in general, trailed behind the liberals. Even the left wing of bourgeois democracy, the so-called Socialist Revolutionary Party, which is affiliated to the International Socialist Bureau, 
floated in the same stream. Mr. Rubanovich, that party's representative on the ISB, comes out as an open social chauvinist. Half of this party's delegates at the London Conference of Entente Socialists voted for a chauvinist resolution, while the other half abstained from voting. In the illegally published press of the socialist revolutionaries, the newspaper Novosti and others, chauvinists predominate. The revolutionaries, quote, from bourgeois circles, i.e. the bourgeois revolutionaries not connected with the working class, have suffered utter bankruptcy in this war. The sad fate of Kropotkin, Burtsev, and Rubanovich is extremely significant. The Working Class and the War The only class in Russia that they did not succeed in infecting with chauvinism is the proletariat. Only the most ignorant strata of the workers were involved in the few excesses that occurred at the beginning of the war. The part played by workers in the Moscow anti-German riots was greatly exaggerated. In general, and on the whole, the working class of Russia proved to be immune to chauvinism. This is to be explained by the revolutionary situation in the country and by the general conditions of life of the Russian proletariat. The years 1912-14 to marked the beginning of a new, grand revolutionary upswing in Russia. We again witnessed a great strike movement, such as the world has not known. The number involved in the mass revolutionary strike in 1913 was, at the very lowest estimation, one and a half million, and in 1914 it rose above two million and drew near to the level of 1905. On the eve of the war, in St. Petersburg, things had already developed to the first barricade battles. The underground Russian Social Democratic Labor Party performed its duty to the international to the full. The banner of internationalism did not falter in its hands. Our party had broken organizationally with the opportunist groups and elements long ago. Its feet were not weighted with the fetters of opportunism and of legalism at any price, and this circumstance helped it to perform its revolutionary duty, just as the breakaway from Bissolati's opportunist party helped the Italian comrades too. The general situation in our country is inimical to the efflorescence of, quote, socialist opportunism among the masses of the workers. In Russia, we see a whole series of shades of opportunism and reformism among the intelligentsia, the petty bourgeoisie, etc., but it constitutes an insignificant minority among the politically active strata of the workers. The privileged stratum of workers and office employees in our country is very weak. The fetishism of legality could not be created here. The liquidators, the party of the opportunists led by Axelrod, Patrasov, Cherevanin, Maslov, and others, found no serious support among the masses of the workers before the war. The elections to the Fourth State Duma resulted in the return of all the six anti-liquidator worker deputies. The circulation of and collection of funds for the legally published workers' press in Petrograd and Moscow have proved irrefutably that four-fifths of the class-conscious workers are opposed to opportunism and liquidationism. Since the beginning of the war, the Tsarist government has arrested and exiled thousands and thousands of advanced workers, members of our underground RSDLP. This circumstance, together with the introduction of martial law in the country, suppression of our newspapers and so forth, has retarded the movement. But for all that, our party is continuing its underground revolutionary activities. In Petrograd, the committee of our party is publishing the underground newspaper Proletarsky Golos. Articles from the central organ, Social Democrat, published abroad, are reprinted in Petrograd and sent out to the provinces. Manifestos are secretly printed and circulated even in soldiers' barracks. In various secluded places outside the city, secret workers' meetings are held. Lately, 
Big strikes of metal workers have begun in Petrograd. In connection with these strikes, our Petrograd committee has issued several appeals to the workers. The Russian Social Democratic Labor Group in the State Duma and the War In 1913, a split occurred among the Social Democratic deputies in the State Duma. On one side were the seven supporters of opportunism led by Chikadze. They were elected for the seven non-proletarian gubernias, where the workers numbered 214,000. On the other side were six deputies, all from workers' curie, elected for the most industrialized centers in Russia, in which the workers numbered 1,008,000. The chief issue in the split was the tactics of revolutionary Marxism or the tactics of opportunist reformism. In practice, the disagreement manifested itself mainly in the sphere of work outside of parliament among the masses. In Russia, this work had to be conducted secretly if those conducting it wanted to remain on revolutionary ground. The Chikaidze group remained a faithful ally of the liquidators who repudiated underground work and defended them in all talks with the workers at all meetings, hence the split. The six deputies formed the RSDL group. The year's work has shown irrefutably that this is the group that has the overwhelming majority of the Russian workers' support. On the outbreak of the war, the disagreement stood out in glaring relief. The Chikaidze group confined itself to parliamentary action. It did not vote for credits, for had it done so, it would have roused against itself a storm of indignation among the workers. We have seen that in Russia, even the petty bourgeois Trudeviki did not vote for credits. But it did not utter a protest against social chauvinism either. The RSDL group, expressing the political line of our party, acted differently. It carried into the very depths of the working class a protest against the war. It conducted anti-imperialist propaganda among the broad masses of the Russian proletarians. And it met with a very sympathetic response among the workers, which frightened the government and compelled it, in flagrant violation of its own laws, to arrest our comrades, the deputies, and to sentence them to lifelong exile in Siberia. In its very first official announcement of the arrest of our comrades, the Tsarist government wrote, quote, an entirely exceptional position in this respect was taken by some members of social democratic societies, the object of whose activities was to shake the military might of Russia by agitating against the war by means of underground appeals and verbal propaganda. Unquote. In response to Vandervelde's well-known appeal, quote, temporarily to stop the struggle against Tsarism, it has now become known from the evidence of Prince Kudashev, the Tsar's envoy in Belgium, that Vandervelde did not draw up this appeal alone, but in collaboration with the above-mentioned Tsar's envoy. Only our party, through its central committee, replied in the negative. The guiding center of the liquidators agreed with Vandervelde, and officially stated in the press that, quote, in its activities it will not counteract the war, unquote. The Tsarist government's primary charge against our comrades, the deputies, was that they propagated this negative answer to Vandervelde among the workers. At the trial, the Tsarist prosecutor, Mr. Nenorokomov, set up the German and French socialists as examples for our comrades. Quote, the German Social Democrats, he said, quote, voted for the war credits and proved to be the friends of the government. That is how the German Social Democrats acted. But the dismal knights of Russian social democracy did not act in this way. The socialists of Belgium and France unanimously forgot their quarrels with other classes, forgot party strife, and unhesitatingly rallied round the flag, unquote. But the members of the RSDL group, obeying the instructions of the central committee of our party, did not act in this way, he said. The trial unfolded an imposing picture of the extensive, 
underground anti-war agitation our party was conducting among the masses of the proletariat. It goes without saying that the Tsarist court did not by a very long way reveal all the activities our comrades were conducting in this sphere, but even what was revealed showed how much had been done within the short space of a few months. At the trial, the secret manifestos issued by our groups and committees against the war and for international tactics were read. Threads stretched from the class-conscious workers all over Russia to the members of the RSDL group, and the latter did all in its power to help the workers to appraise the war from the standpoint of Marxism. Comrade Miranov, the deputy of the workers of the Kharkov Gubernia, said at the trial, quote, Understanding that the people did not send me into the state Duma for the purpose of wearing out the seat of a Duma armchair, I traveled about the country to ascertain the mood of the working class, unquote. He admitted at the trial that he took upon himself the function of a secret agitator of our party, that in the Urals he organized a workers' committee at the Verknysetsky Works and in other places. The trial showed that after the war broke out, members of the RSDO group traveled through almost the whole of Russia for propaganda purposes, that Muranov, Petrovsky, Badiev, and others arranged numerous workers' meetings at which anti-war resolutions were passed and so forth. Comment. So I hate to interrupt this because this is fascinating, but this is how you lay the groundwork for a revolution. Continuing. The Tsarist government threatened the accused with capital punishment. Owing to this, not all of them behaved at the actual trial as bravely as Comrade Muranov. They tried to make it difficult for the Tsarist prosecutors to secure their conviction. The Russian social chauvinists are now meanly utilizing this to obscure the essence of the question. What kind of parliamentarism does the working class need? Parliamentarism is recognized by Sudikum and Heine, Samba and Valiant, Bisalati and Mussolini, Chikaidze and Plekhanov, and parliamentarism is recognized by our comrades in the RSDL Duma group. It is recognized by the Bulgarian and Italian comrades who have broken with the chauvinists. There are different kinds of parliamentarism. Some utilize the parliamentary arena in order to win the favor of their governments, or, at best, to wash their hands of everything, like the Chikaidze group. Others utilize parliamentarism in order to remain revolutionary to the end, to perform their duty as socialists and internationalists, even under the most difficult circumstances. The parliamentary activities of some bring them into ministerial seats. The parliamentary activities of others bring them to prison, to exile, to penal servitude. Some serve the bourgeoisie, others the proletariat. Some are social imperialists, others are revolutionary Marxists. Chapter 3. The Restoration of the International How should the international be restored? But first, a few words about how the international should not be restored. The method of the social chauvinists and the center. Oh, the social chauvinists of all countries are big, quote, internationalists. Since the very beginning of the war, they have been burdened with care for the international. On the one hand, they assure us that the talk about the collapse of the international is, quote, exaggerated. Actually, nothing exceptional has occurred. Listen to Kautsky. Simply, the international is a, quote, peacetime instrument. Naturally, this instrument was to be found somewhat not up to the mark in wartime. On the other hand, the social chauvinists of all countries have found a very simple, and chiefly an international, way out of the situation that has arisen. A simple way out. It is only necessary to wait until the war ends. But until the war ends, the socialists of each country must defend their fatherland and support, quote, their government. When the war ends, mutual amnesty, admission that everybody was right, that in peacetime we live like brothers, 
but in wartime we, on the basis of such and such resolutions, call upon the German workers to exterminate their French brothers, and vice versa. On this, Kautsky and Plekhanov and Victor Adler and Heine are equally agreed. Victor Adler writes that, quote, When we have passed through this hard time, our first duty will be to refrain from pointing to the moat in each other's eye, unquote. That's funny. Kautsky asserts that, quote, Up till now, no voices of serious socialists have been heard from any side that rouse apprehensions, unquote, concerning the fate of the international. Plekhanov says that, quote, It is unpleasant to grasp the hands of the German social democrats that reek of the blood of the innocently killed, unquote. But he at once goes on to propose a, quote, amnesty. Quote, here it will be quite appropriate, he writes, to subordinate the heart to the mind. For the sake of the great cause, the international will have to take into consideration even belated remorse, unquote. Comment, how practically could you actually trust people like this to follow through on revolution when they were just killing you on behalf of the bourgeoisie? Honestly, I mean, that is a serious practical question. They were just aligning with the bourgeoisie against you. Now you're supposed to trust them against the bourgeoisie. But you know that their policy is as soon as the bourgeoisie calls them to go to war again on behalf of the bourgeoisie, to not work with you, not to overthrow the bourgeoisie, but to kill you. How can you do that? Anyway, continuing. Heine in Sozialistische Monatschefte describes Vanderveld's behavior as courageous and proud and sets him up an example for the German lefts. In short, when the war ends, appoint a commission consisting of Kautsky and Plekhanov, Vanderveld and Adler, and a, quote, unanimous resolution in the spirit of mutual amnesty will be drawn up in a truce. The dispute will then be safely covered up. Instead of helping the workers to understand what has occurred, they will deceive them with sham, paper, quote, unity. The amalgamation of the social chauvinists and hypocrites of all countries will be described as the restoration of the international. We must not conceal from ourselves the fact that the danger of such a restoration is very great. The social chauvinists of all countries are equally interested in it. All of them are equally unwilling that the masses of the workers themselves should try to grasp the issue, socialism or nationalism. All of them are equally interested in covering up each other's sins. None of them is able to propose anything except what is proposed by that virtuoso in, quote, international hypocrisy, Kautsky. And yet, this danger is scarcely realized. During the year of war, we have witnessed a number of attempts to restore international connections. We will not speak of the conferences in London and Vienna at which downright chauvinists assembled to help the general staffs and the bourgeoisie of their, quote, fatherlands. We have in mind the conferences in Lugano and Copenhagen, the International Women's Conference and the International Youth Conference. These assemblies were inspired by the best wishes, but they totally failed to see the above-mentioned danger. They did not lay down a fighting line for internationalists. They did not point out to the proletariat the danger that threatens it from the social chauvinist method of, quote, restoring the international. At best, they confined themselves to repeating the old resolutions without indicating to the workers that unless a struggle is waged against the social chauvinists, the cause of socialism is hopeless. At best, they marked time. The State of Affairs Among the Opposition There can be no doubt whatever that what interests all internationalists most is the state of affairs among the German social democratic opposition. 
official German social democracy, which was the strongest and the leading party in the Second International, struck the heaviest blow at the International Workers' Organization. But at the same time, it was in German social democracy that the strongest opposition was found. Of all the big European parties, it was in the German party that the loud voice of protest of the comrades, who remained loyal to the banner of socialism, was first raised. It was with joy that we read the magazines Lichtstrahlen and Die Internationale. With still greater joy, we learned of the distribution in Germany of secretly printed manifestos, as, for example, the manifesto entitled, The Chief Enemy is at Home. This showed that the spirit of socialism is alive among the German workers, that there are still people in Germany capable of upholding revolutionary Marxism. The split in the present-day socialist movement has been most strikingly revealed within German social democracy. Here we very distinctly see three trends, the opportunist chauvinists, who have nowhere sunk to such a degree of renegacy as they have in Germany, the Kautskyan, quote, center, which has here proved to be incapable of playing any other role than that of servitors of the opportunists, and the left, who are the only social democrats in Germany. Naturally, what interests us most of all is the state of affairs among the German left. In it, we see our comrades, the hope of all the internationalist elements. What is the state of affairs in it? The magazine Die Internationale was quite right when it wrote that the German left was still in a state of ferment, that considerable regroupings still lie ahead in it, that there are more resolute and less resolute elements within it. We Russian internationalists do not in the least, of course, claim the right to interfere in the internal affairs of our comrades, the German lefts. We're aware that they alone are fully competent to determine their methods of fighting the opportunists in conformity with the conditions of time and place. Only, we deem it our right and duty, frankly, to express our opinion on the state of affairs. We are convinced that the author of the leading article in the magazine Die Internationale was profoundly right when he asserted that the Kautskyan center is doing more harm to Marxism than avowed social chauvinism. Whoever now obscures disagreements, whoever now, in the guise of Marxism, preaches to the workers what Kautskyism is preaching, is lulling the workers, is more harmful than the Sudikums and Heines, who put the question bluntly and compel the workers to try to grasp the issue. The fact that Kautsky and Hasse are permitting themselves lately to demur against the quote official bodies should mislead nobody. The disagreements between them and the Scheidemans are not on fundamentals. The former believe that Hindenburg and Mackensen are already victorious and that they can already permit themselves the luxury of protesting against annexations. The latter believe that Hindenburg and Mackensen are not yet victorious and that therefore it is necessary, quote, to hold out to the end. Kautskyism is waging only a sham fight against the, quote, official bodies precisely in order to be able, after the war, to obscure the fundamental dispute for the workers and to gloss the matter over with the thousand and first puffy resolution couched in a vaguely, quote, leftist spirit in the drafting of which the diplomats of the Second International are such masters. It is quite understandable that in their arduous struggle against the, quote, official bodies, the German opposition should also make use of this unprincipled opposition raised by Kautskyism. But what must remain the touchstone for every internationalist is hostility towards neo-Kautskyism. Only he is a genuine internationalist who fights Kautskyism, who understands that fundamentally the center even after the sham turn taken by its leaders, remains an ally of the chauvinists and opportunists. Of enormous importance is our attitude toward the wavering elements in the international in general. These elements, 
mainly socialists of the pacifist shade, are to be found both in the neutral countries and in some of the belligerent countries. In England, for example, the Independent Labour Party. These elements can be our fellow travelers. Rapprochement with them in opposition to the social chauvinists is necessary, but it must be borne in mind that they are only fellow travelers, that on the chief and fundamental issues, with the restoration of the international, these elements will not go with us, but against us. They will go with Kautsky, Scheidemann, Vanderveld, and Samba. At international conferences, we must not limit our program to what is acceptable to these elements. If we do, we will become the captives of the wavering pacifists. This is what happened, for example, at the International Women's Conference in Bern. The German delegation, which supported Comrade Klaritzetkin's point of view, actually played the part of the center at this conference. The Women's Conference said only what was acceptable to the delegates from the opportunist Dutch party led by Trollstra and to the delegates of the Independent Labour Party, which, we will not forget this, at the London Conference of Entente Chauvinists, voted for Vanderveld's resolution. We express our greatest respect for the ILP for the brave struggle it has been waging against the British government during the war, but we know that this party has not adopted the Marxist stand. We, however, are of the opinion that the chief task of the social democratic opposition at the present moment is to raise the banner of revolutionary Marxism, to tell the workers firmly and definitely how we regard imperialist wars, to issue the watchword of mass revolutionary action, i.e., to transform the epoch of imperialist wars into the beginning of the epoch of civil wars. In spite of everything, there are revolutionary social democratic elements in many countries. They are to be found in Germany and in Russia, and in Scandinavia, the influential trend of which Comrade Hoagland is the representative, and in the Balkans, the party of the Bulgarian Tesniaki, and in Italy, and in England, a section of the British Socialist Party, and in France, Bayant himself has admitted in L'Humanité that he has received letters of protest from internationalists, but he has not published one of them in full, and in Holland, the Tribunists, etc., to rally these Marxist elements, however small their numbers may be at the beginning, to recall in their name the now-forgotten words of genuine socialism, to call upon the workers of all countries to break with the chauvinists and to come under the old banner of Marxism, such is the task of the day. Conferences with so-called programs of, quote, action have amounted up till now only to the proclamation, more or less fully, of the program of simple pacifism. Marxism is not pacifism. It is necessary, of course, to fight for the speediest termination of the war, but only if a revolutionary struggle is called for does the demand for peace acquire proletarian meaning. Without a series of revolutions, so-called democratic peace is a Philistine utopia. The purpose of a real program of action would be served only by a Marxian program, which gave the masses a full and clear explanation of what has occurred, which explained what imperialism is and how to combat it, which openly stated that it was opportunism that led to the collapse of the Second International, which openly called for the building of a Marxist international without and against the opportunists. Only such a program as would show that we have confidence in ourselves, confidence in Marxism, that we proclaim a life-and-death struggle against opportunism, would sooner or later ensure for us the sympathy of the genuine proletarian masses. The Russian Social Democratic Labor Party and the Third International the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party split away from its opportunists long ago. The Russian opportunists have now, in addition, become chauvinists. This only strengthens our opinion that a split from them in the interests of socialism is essential. We are convinced 
that the Social Democrats' present disagreements with the social chauvinists are in no way less wide than the socialists' disagreements with the anarchists when the Social Democrats split away from the latter. The opportunist monitor rightly said in Preussische Jahrbücher that the present unity was to the advantage of the opportunists and the bourgeoisie because it compelled the lefts to submit to the chauvinists and prevents the workers from grasping the issue and from forming their own genuinely workers, genuinely socialist party. We are most firmly convinced that in the present state of affairs, a split from the opportunists and chauvinists is the primary duty of the revolutionary. Just as a split from the yellows, the anti-Semites, the liberal workers' unions, etc., was essential precisely in the interests of the speediest enlightenment of the backward workers and of drawing them into the ranks of the Social Democratic Party. In our opinion, the Third International should be built on precisely such a revolutionary basis. For our party, the question as to whether it is expedient to break with the social chauvinists does not exist. For it, this question has been irrevocably settled. The only question that exists for our party is whether this can be achieved in the nearest future on an international scale. It is quite understandable that to bring about an international Marxist organization, there must be a readiness to form independent Marxist parties in different countries. Germany, being the country with the oldest and strongest working class movement, is of decisive importance. The immediate future will show whether conditions have already ripened for the formation of a new Marxist International. If they have, our party will gladly join such a third international that will be purged of opportunism and chauvinism. If they have not, it will show that a more or less prolonged evolution is needed for this purging. In that case, our party will be the extreme opposition within the old international, until a base is formed in different countries for an international workingmen's association that stands on the basis of revolutionary Marxism. We do not nor can we know what developments will take place in the international arena within the next few years. But there is one thing we know for certain, and of which we are unshakably convinced, namely that our party, in our country, among our proletariat, will work tirelessly in the above-mentioned direction, and by all its daily activities will build up the Russian section of the Marxist international. In Russia, too, we have no lack of avowed social chauvinists and, quote, center groups. These people will fight against the formation of a Marxist international. We know that Plekhanov, in principle, stands on the same ground as Zudikum and is already stretching out a hand to him. We know that the so-called Organization Committee, led by Axelrod, is preaching Kautskyism on Russian soil. In the guise of working-class unity, these people are preaching unity with the opportunists, and through them, with the bourgeoisie. But everything we know about the present working class movement in Russia fully convinces us that the class conscious proletariat in Russia will, as hitherto, remain with our party. Chapter 4 The History of the Split and the Present State of Social Democracy in Russia The above described tactics of the RSDLP in relation to the war are the inevitable result of the 30 years' development of social democracy in Russia. These tactics and the present state of social democracy in our country cannot be properly understood unless one ponders over the history of our party. That is why we must here, too, remind the reader about the major facts in this history. As an ideological trend, social democracy arose in 1883, when social democratic views applied to Russia were for the first time systematically expounded abroad by the Emancipation of Labor Group. 
Until the beginning of the 1890s, social democracy remained an ideological trend with no connection to the mass working class movement in Russia. At the beginning of the 90s, the upswing of the social movement, the unrest and strike movement among the workers, transformed social democracy into an active political force, inseparably connected with the struggle, both economic and political, of the working class. And from that very moment, social democracy began to split into the, quote, economists and the Iskraists. The Economists and the Old Iskra, 1894-1903. Economism was an opportunist trend in Russian social democracy. Its political essence was summed up in the program, for the workers, the economic struggle, for the liberals, the political struggle. Its chief theoretical prop was so-called legal Marxism, or Struvism, which, quote, recognized a, quote, Marxism that was completely purged of every scrap of revolutionary spirit and was adapted to the requirements of the liberal bourgeoisie. On the plea that the masses of the workers in Russia were immature and wishing to, quote, march with the masses, the economists restricted the tasks and scope of the working class movement to the economic struggle and political support for liberalism and did not set themselves independent political or any revolutionary tasks. The Old Iskra, translated to The Spark, a newspaper founded by Lenin, 1900 to 1903, waged a victorious struggle against economism for the principles of revolutionary social democracy. The entire flower of the class-conscious proletariat took the side of Iskra. For a number of years before the revolution, social democracy advocated the most consistent and uncompromising program. Both the class struggle and the action of the masses during the 1905 revolution confirmed the correctness of this program. The economists adapted themselves to the backwardness of the masses. Iskra, trained the vanguard of the workers that was capable of leading the masses forward. The arguments at present advanced by the social chauvinists, that it is necessary to reckon with the masses, that imperialism is progressive, about the, quote, illusions harbored by revolutionaries, etc., had all been advanced by the economists. The opportunist alteration of Marxism to the Struvist style became known to social democracy in Russia 20 years ago. Menshevism and Bolshevism, 1903-1908. The epoch of bourgeois democratic revolution gave rise to a new struggle between trends in social democracy that was the direct continuation of the preceding struggle. Economism changed into Menshevism. The championing of the revolutionary tactics of the old Iskra gave rise to Bolshevism. In the turbulent years of 1905-1907, to Menshevism was an opportunist trend backed by the bourgeois liberals and brought liberal bourgeois trends into the working class movement. Adaptation of the working class struggle to liberalism, such was its substance. Bolshevism, on the contrary, set the social democratic workers the task of rousing the democratic peasantry for the revolutionary struggle, despite the vacillation and treachery of liberalism. And the masses of the workers, as the Mensheviks themselves admitted more than once, marched with the Bolsheviks during the revolution in all the biggest actions. The 1905 revolution tested, strengthened, deepened, and steeled the uncompromisingly revolutionary social democratic tactics in Russia. The open tactics of classes and parties repeatedly disclosed the connection between social democratic opportunism, or Menshevism, and liberalism. Marxism and liquidationism 1908 to 1914. The counter-revolutionary epoch again, in an entirely new form, placed the question of the opportunist and revolutionary tactics of social democracy on the order of the day. 
The chief current of Menshevism, in spite of the protests of many of its best representatives, gave rise to the trend of liquidationism, renunciation of the struggle for a new revolution in Russia, renunciation of secret organization and activity, contempt for and ridicule of the underground, of the slogan for a republic, etc. The group of legal writers for the magazine Nasha Zarya, that was Patrasov, Cherevanin, and others, constituted a nucleus, independent of the old Social Democratic Party, which in a thousand ways was supported, boosted, and nursed by the liberal bourgeoisie of Russia, which wanted to wean the workers from the revolutionary struggle. This group of opportunists was expelled from the party by the January Conference of the RSDLP, 1912, which restored the party in spite of the furious resistance of a number of groups and coteries abroad. For more than two years, the beginning of 1912 to the middle of 1914, a stubborn struggle raged between the two social democratic parties, the Central Committee that was elected in January 1912 and the, quote, Organization Committee, which refused to recognize the January conference and wanted to restore the party in a different way, by maintaining unity with the Nashazaria group. A stubborn struggle raged between the two daily workers' newspapers, Pravda and Luch and their successors, and between the two social democratic groups in the Fourth State Duma, the RSDL group of Pravdists, or Marxists, and the, quote, social democratic group of the liquidators headed by Chikadze. Championing loyalty to the party's revolutionary principles, fostering the incipient revival of the working class movement, especially after the spring of 1911, Combining underground with open organization, press, and agitation, the Pravdists raffled around themselves the overwhelming majority of the class-conscious working class, whereas the liquidators, who, as a political force, operated exclusively through the Nashazaria group, leaned on the all-round support of the liberal bourgeois elements. The open financial contributions of workers' groups to the newspapers of the two parties, which was at that time a form of social democratic membership dues adapted to Russian conditions and the only one legally possible and freely verifiable by all, strikingly confirmed the proletarian source of the strength and influence of the Pravdists, actual Marxists, and the bourgeois liberal source of that of the liquidators and their organizing committee. Here are brief figures of these contributions, which are given in full in the book Marxism and Liquidationism, and in an abbreviated form in the German Social Democratic newspaper, the Leipzig People's Paper of July 21st, 1914. So here there's a chart. It says numbers and amounts of contributions to the daily St. Petersburg newspapers, the Pravdist, which were the Marxists, and the Liquidationist from January 1st to May 13, 1914. So the Pravdist received from workers groups 2,873 contributions, whereas from non-workers groups it was 713, and the amount in rubles from workers groups was almost 19,000, and from non-workers groups 2,700. Meanwhile, the liquidationist got from workers groups 671 contributions, and that was about 5,300 rubles, and then from non-workers groups 453 contributions, totaling about 6,800 rubles. So Lenin continues, Thus, by 1914, our party had united four-fifths of the class-conscious workers of Russia around revolutionary social democratic tactics. For the whole of 1913, the Pravdists received contributions from 2,181 workers' groups and the liquidators from 661. The figures from January 1st, 1913 to May 13, 1914 will be 5,054 contributions from workers' groups for the Pravdists, 
that is for our party, and 1,332, i.e. 20.8% for the liquidators. Marxism and Social Chauvinism, 1914-1915 The Great European War of 1914-15 gave all the European and also the Russian Social Democrats the opportunity to test their tactics on a crisis of worldwide dimensions. The reactionary, predatory, and slave-owner character of the war stands out in immeasurably more striking relief in the case of Tsarism than it does in the case of the other governments. Nevertheless, the major group of liquidators, the only group besides ours which has serious influence in Russia thanks to its liberal connections, turned toward social chauvinism. Enjoying a monopoly of legality for a fairly long period, this Nashazaria group conducted propaganda among the masses in favor of, quote, non-resistance to the war, of wishing for the victory of the triple, now quadruple entente, accusing German imperialism of, quote, super-diabolical sins, etc. Plekhanov, who since 1903 has repeatedly given examples of his extreme political spinelessness and desertion to opportunism, took up still more pronouncedly the very position that is so highly praised by the whole of the bourgeois press of Russia. Plekhanov has sunk so low as to declare that Tsarism is waging a just war, and to publish an interview in the government newspapers in Italy urging her to enter the war. The correctness of our appraisal of liquidationism and of the expulsion of the major group of liquidators from our party is thus fully confirmed. The real program of the liquidators and the real significance of their trend now constitute not only opportunism in general, but defense of the imperialist privileges and advantages of the great Russian landlords and bourgeoisie. It is a national liberal labor policy trend. It is an alliance of a section of the radical petty bourgeoisie and a tiny handful of privileged workers with, quote, their national bourgeoisie against the mass of the proletariat. The Present State of Affairs in Russian Social Democracy As we have already said, neither the liquidators nor a number of groups abroad, those of Plekhanov, Aleksinsky, Trotsky, and others, nor the so-called national, i.e. non-great Russian social democrats, have recognized our conference of January 1911. Among the innumerable epithets hurled against us, those most often repeated were usurpers and splitters. We answered by quoting exact and objectively verifiable figures showing that our party united four-fifths of the class-conscious workers in Russia. This is no small figure considering the difficulties of underground activities in a counter-revolutionary epoch. If unity were possible in Russia on the basis of social democratic tactics without expelling the Nashazaria group, why have not our numerous opponents brought it about even among themselves? No less than three and a half years have passed since January 1912, and during the whole of this time, our opponents, much as they have desired to do so, have failed to form a social democratic party in opposition to us. This fact is our party's best defense. The entire history of the social democratic groups that are fighting our party is a history of collapse and disintegration. In March 1912, all of them, without exception, quote, united in abusing us. But already, in August 1912, when the so-called August Bloc was formed against it, disintegration began among them. Some of the groups fell away from them. They could not form a party and a central committee. They set up only an organization committee, quote, for the purpose of restoring unity. Actually, this OC turned out to be a feeble cover for the liquidationist group in Russia. During the whole period of the tremendous upswing of the working class movement in Russia, 
and of the mass strikes of 1912-14, to 14, the only group in the entire August bloc that conducted activities among the masses was the Nasha Zarya group, whose strength lay in its liberal connections. And at the beginning of 1914, the Lettish Social Democrats officially withdrew from the August bloc. The Polish Social Democrats did not join it, while Trotsky, one of the leaders of the bloc, left it unofficially, having again formed his own separate group. In July 1914, at the conference in Brussels, with the participation of the executive committee of the ISB, Kautsky and Vanderveld, the so-called Brussels bloc, was formed against us, which the Letts did not join, and from which the Polish opposition Social Democrats forthwith withdrew. When the war broke out, this bloc collapsed. Nashazaria, Plekhanov, Aleksinski, and An, the leader of the Caucasian Social Democrats, became open social chauvinists, preaching the desirability of Germany's defeat. The OC and the Bund defended the social chauvinists and the principles of social chauvinism. The Chikaidze Duma group, although it voted against the war credits, in Russia, even the bourgeois Democrats, the Trudoviki, voted against them. Remain Nashazaria's faithful ally. Our extreme social chauvinists, Plekhanov, Aleksinsky and company, were quite pleased with the Chikaidze group. In Paris, the newspaper Nasha Slovo, formerly Golos, was started, with the participation mainly of Martov and Trotsky, who wanted to combine platonic defense of internationalism with the absolute demand for unity with Nasha Zarya, the OC, or the Chikaidze group. After 150 issues of this newspaper, it was itself forced to admit its disintegration. One section of the editorial board gravitated toward our party. Martov remained faithful to the OC, which publicly censured Nasha Slovo for its, quote, anarchism, just as the opportunists in Germany charged Comrade Liebknecht with anarchism, Trotsky announced his rupture with the OC, but wanted to go with the Chikaidze group. Here are the program and tactics of the Chikaidze group, enunciated by one of its leaders. In number 5, 1915, of Sovremeni Mir, magazine of the Plekhanov and Aleksinsky trend, Chuck and Kelly writes, quote, to say that German social democracy was in a position to prevent its country from going to war, but failed to do so would mean either secretly wishing that it should not only have breathed its last breath on the barricades, but also have had its fatherland breathe its last, or looking at nearby things through an anarchist telescope." Unquote. These few lines express the sum and substance of social chauvinism, both the justification on principle of the defense of the fatherland idea, and mockery with the permission of the military censors at the preaching and preparation of revolution. It is not at all a question as to whether German social democracy was or was not in a position to prevent war, nor whether, in general, revolutionaries can guarantee the success of a revolution. The question is, should we behave like socialists, or really breathe our last, in the embrace of the imperialist bourgeoisie? Our Party's Tasks Social democracy in Russia arose before the bourgeois democratic revolution of 1905 in our country and gained strength during the revolution and counter-revolution. The backwardness of Russia explained the extraordinary multiplicity of trends and shades of petty bourgeois opportunism in our country, and the influence of Marxism in Europe and the stability of the legally existing social democratic parties before the war converted our exemplary liberals into near admirers of the, quote, reasonable, quote, European, meaning non-revolutionary, quote, legal, quote, Marxist theory, and social democracy. The working class of Russia could not build up its party otherwise than in a resolute 30-year struggle against all the varieties of opportunism. The experience of the World War, 
which has brought about the shameful collapse of European opportunism and has strengthened the alliance of our national liberals with social chauvinist liquidationism, still further strengthens our conviction that our party must continue further along the same consistently revolutionary road. And that's the end of the audiobook. I actually thought this one was really important, and I'll probably be including it in my recommended reading shortlist. This is a list I'm still putting together. I do have a longer playlist on the channel right now called S4A's Picks, but we're doing a long version and a short version of that. Right now the long one is up, but it's still not complete. So there's like a hundred things in it, and I haven't really whittled it down at all. And there's also more stuff that I'll be adding to it. It's not complete even among the things that are already recorded and on the channel. I just haven't added them yet. But if you are familiar with the playlists on the channel, and if you're not, go check it out. Hit the playlist tab. There are a number of recommended reading playlists, and these come from a variety of organizations, parties, other channels that I don't necessarily have anything to do with, and in some cases don't even really like. However, I do think that reading lists are interesting, and there's usually... A lot of overlap between them, but there are also some differences which I think it's interesting sometimes to study what people accentuate and why. Anyway, I would be including this in one of my own, you know, a shorter one that would have maybe 20 or 30 recommended core texts. Lenin wrote a lot on the subjects that were discussed in this text, and actually I felt like we were kind of doing a best of of a lot of the shorter ones kind of a medley, if you will, of a lot of other articles that he wrote on various topics during this general time period. Last year, following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, I recorded a number, maybe two dozen, Lenin audiobooks on the topics of nationalism, war, internationalism, revolutionary defeatism, and so on, and I felt like this text incorporated some of the main theses of pretty much all those other ones. That said, I like Lenin's writing a lot, and he has a knack for restating things in appealing ways sometimes, so I wouldn't necessarily recommend skipping all the other ones, but if you were to read just one, I think that he hit many of the main points of the other texts, except I would say the right of nations to self-determination. That wasn't really elaborated on here. However, the last major Lenin one that we did, which is a caricature of Marxism and imperialist economism, that covers that at length. So I think this is a good companion piece. Actually, this piece was referenced in the footnotes of that one, and so that's kind of why I recorded it. All right, anyway, enough from me. What do you think? Leave a question or comment below. We'll continue the discussion in the comment section as always. Otherwise, thanks for listening, and thanks to the current patrons and buymeacoffee.com supporters whose names are on the screen now. If you'd like to get your name on the screen, head to patreon.com slash socialismforall or buymeacoffee.com slash socialism for all. You can sign up for as little as $2 a month or more. Every donation is encouraging. They're also materially helpful and they allow me to spend more time on this channel than I'd be able to do without that support. So thank you very much for that. And whether you are a financial supporter or not, engagement counts. So like, share, subscribe, leave a comment, even if it's just thanks or good video, or if you have just some question about the text, that's always helpful too. We are trying to help people learn this and actually teach it because why are we doing this channel? We have major political problems to be solved. Capitalism still exists as the dominant mode of production on the planet today. We need to get rid of it. How do we do that? Massive agitation, education, and organizing. So the organizing happens in real life. I'm going to leave that to you. Get involved in your local left. Find out what's going on. Network with people. There are projects going on everywhere that need your support. 
more people to get involved. You will find your strengths as far as what type of work best suits you in the process of actually trying some things out. But do get to know some people, organizations, parties, whatever it is, unions, and find out where you can get involved. But while that happens in real life online, we can do at least a good amount of agitation and education. So again, we thank everybody who has been part of the so far three and a half year, almost actually probably more than that now, uh, journey on this channel. So thanks to everybody who, whether you have been supporting for, you know, back in the Facebook days, or whether you just stumbled onto the channel last month or last week, thank you for taking the time and the interest to study what's going on with capitalism and how do we bring about socialism and helping to make this channel bigger and richer and more relevant to what is going on in the lives of workers everywhere and broadening that conversation so that as struggling people develop class consciousness and start to generate real questions about society and the economy and exploitation, oppression, they can stumble onto things like this more easily and find an in to whatever particular questions are burning on their mind. All right. Thanks again, and we'll see you in the next video.